Welcome to Lean Back. I'm Lisa. And I'm Laura. And today's episode is on disappointment. And we're going to tell you a little bit about our podcast and then start the live recording. So um, this podcast originally started as a joke with me basically screaming at Sheryl Sandberg all over the internet when she published her book, Lean In. And so I just started tagging Laura um, in bits about Lean In as like this faux-feminist neoliberal manifesto about how if women just worked harder, then their merit would show through and they would get paid more and promoted more, and if only they did more, then they would get more. And it's just idiotic and racist and classist. And so as she started doing her tours, I started seeing all of this press about leaning in and tagging Remy Ma and Fat Joe and Terror Squad. And we started talking about leaning back as a different kind of engagement with knowledge and with neoliberal structures and assessments about power. And so um, I told Laura, I said, you know, what I really want to do is do drunk feminist history. And I want you to drive me around to Seneca Falls and shit, and I'm gonna get drunk and talk about feminist history and race history, because that's what I do. And I'm like, I don't really have the time for that. And she's like, what about a podcast? And I said, okay. <laughs> so now we do this. Right, a lot. <laughs> so while most podcasts have like one storyline or one topic, we kind of use one uh, lens, which is a critical feminist, a radical feminist lens. So each uh, episode is a different topic. Um, and so while, you know, most of our, our topics are like, I mean, there's stuff that applies to day-to-day -day culture and day-to-day -day lives. And, um, and we always try and circle back to our orientation of leaning back. Yeah, and so every episode is a one, one word. And so we kind of take a cultural studies approach to investigating a bunch of different aspects of that word and the way that it structures power and our attention, our investments, our political investments, our embodied investments in, in political culture. So today we're gonna talk about disappointment. And so I guess we should start by saying why we chose this and I sort of forced, <laughs> I was like, Laura, I need to talk about disappointment right now. And I need to talk about disappointment because I feel like I'm surrounded by people who are constantly confessing their disappointments in me, to me about politics and about about Trumpism and about white supremacy and the neo-Nazis and the tiki torches and overwork culture and the failures of white people because they're so numerous and constant. And, um, and so I, I wanna just talk about disappointment as something that is perpetually creating cycles of anxiety in, in, in this particular moment. I think it's important to question what, like why, why are we talking about disappointment? Because there, I mean, especially with like the new data on how many people actually died in Puerto Rico, which just released. A lot of families have been separated at the border in the last month. Um, there's a lot of like devastating emotional turmoil um, <laughs> that's happening. Mm -hmm. um, so I think it's important though to talk about disappointment, even though those things are happening, because this is like a pervasive like white noise that um, structures a lot of the way that people feel about themselves and feel about like objects of attachment. Yeah, and I mean by white, it's white. It's white noise because it's white people. So I mean, for me as a race scholar, I think a lot about how disappointment is really about affective structures that white people have towards objects that they feel entitled to or things that they feel like they were promised. I think a lot about my students because their parents tell them these garbage narratives about the job market and what it's gonna be like and what their salary should be like, and how many kids they should have and when they should own a home and like all of these benchmarks for the white middle class which is like a wall and gone and never coming back, presumably. 
And I also think about how that structures political feelings. I write a lot about political feelings and how they're racialized and how white people have a sense of hope about the economy that is founded, founded in their whiteness, not necessarily in like, you know, economic realities. And so I think we have these narratives and scripts about success and about what it means to be good and to be successful that are part of our sexual culture, it's part of our economic culture, it's the way we rearrange bodies in the culture. And I think that they structure our senses of success and failure in ways that are creating a bunch of anxiety. Yeah, I mean, I feel like we're incubated in a culture of accumulation and possession and attractiveness, appearance. And so I was an economics instructor for a while um, and I did this exercise with my students uh, to try and teach them about unlimited wants. And so I would, you know, go around the room and ask them to share what they wanted. And like, as the exercise went on, the ones got more and more ridiculous. Like one kid was like, I want a private island. And so I was like, well, okay, so if you have a private island, then what would be the next thing that you want? And then one kid was like, I want a hotter wife. You know, so like, (laughs) there's all, no matter what, like, and then if you have a hotter wife, you want like, to have an affair with, you know, another woman. So there's like, no matter what, there's always something that you want and that you can't have. And so, I mean, if we're prioritizing these values of accumulation and possession, and equating them with success and happiness, then we're setting ourselves up for disappointment. And I think, you know, I obviously strongly object to lean-in culture because I think that it habituates women especially um, to overperform in their lives. And so they're overperforming emotional labor in their relationships, whether they're cis-hetero or not. So they're filling in all of this, um, the gaps there about the language of emotions and sexual feeling and pleasure and desire and the labor of the household. And then add on to that the entire second shift where they're also the emotional midwives of their male bosses and their male students who are angry and like random dudes at the bar and the barista who wants to make conversation. And so I feel like the lean in culture that is advising women that they are permanently broken or that they're permanently sinful and they need to invest their money in more beauty products and more self-help literature is fundamentally eroding their ability to see Um, success and failure as constants that are productive parts of any human life cycle and instead relegating them to be these sorts of, you know, like I said, emotional midwives for the culture. And so as I watched, you know, all these black kids getting shot by the police and I'm watching Trumpism evolve, it was a totally predictable thing. I'm watching white women in their pussy hats wanting to march and not understanding that the marching is not really gonna under, I don't know, undo all of the labor that they're being asked to do. And especially as we're watching these, have you been watching these Kavanaugh confirmation hearings? What a shit show that is. And so who's, who's getting arrested at those? It's women, it's mostly white women. And who's outside protesting? That's women. And so it's like, and who's doing all of the abortion care on the ground? It's mostly women of color in urban centers that are pushing a reproductive justice agenda that sees violence as an intrinsic part of any kind of health care. And so, you know, I just see all of these women in the policy world and in public life doing um, the work of standing in the gap to forestall what's gonna be 10 times worse than it is right now. Yeah, I think not only are women uh, asked to perform more and do additional labor, I mean, I think there's like a pervasive underlying feeling that a lot of women have that they can't disappoint men. 
Um, like Jillian Flynn writes about this in, in Gone Girl with her concept of the cool girl. And so that's uh, the concept of when women orient themselves to be attractive to men, like you like to watch sports even though you don't really and you're, you'll uh, shotgun a beer or a pound of hamburger, but still you have to be uh, hot. So whatever you need to do in your downtime <laughs> uh, yeah. to like still be attractive, putting on makeup, um, exercising, staying fit. Um, and also you still do all of that labor, all the cooking. Um, so it, it's, all of this is like in an attempt to avoid disappointing men, I think. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's actually really dangerous. I think about like um, the accusations against Aziz Ansari um, because he kept like pushing intercourse um, even though this woman didn't want to have sex with him. But in order, like saying, I don't want to have sex with you right now would have been to disappoint Aziz Ansari. Mm -hmm. And so she was unwilling to do that. And don't get me wrong, like this was absolutely not her fault. Aziz Ansari is like a very intelligent man and he's intelligent enough to read body language and nonverbal cues. Um, so he has the responsibility to do better. Um, but I think it happens a lot. Like women avoid saying no directly because that would be like a disappointment um, and they would feel disappointing. And I think women avoid that. Um, and just because there's not an obvious no or it doesn't mean that there is consent, aversion to being disappoint disappointing by saying no is causing a lot of like awkward sexual situations. But I think it's bigger than that. When I see, especially um, younger students, they will do anything possible not to disappoint any men, and so they, they contort the way that they speak to make sure that they have tag questions at the end of every statement to make sure that there's some consent implied, that they have created an audience where we are all on the same page. That kind of linguistic tick is about avoiding disappointment and confronting men with decisions. So for me, you know, I was trained as a debater, so I'm just gonna be like, yo, I need those slides. They're late. <laughs> and you can have feelings about that, but they were due yesterday. And you can have a tantrum in my office, and you can have a tantrum at the bar, and I'm gonna tell you again that that's late. But, I, but there are, even in micro-communication moments, there are ways in which women and also people of color and other non-normative people have to try and contort themselves away from any kind of o overt confrontational, I guess, moment as a, a self-preservation, right? As a tool of self-preservation because violence is always the anticipated response. And so for me, I guess I see disappointment as a script of really deep sadness that's an unacknowledged awareness about just how dangerous the culture is that we lived in, papered over with a bunch of neoliberal bullshit that tells us that we're the greatest and the cultures were so equal and we have the most equal culture ever and the best democracy and all this nonsense cheerleading bullshit, right? Manifest destiny, American exceptionalism. And I really think that disappointment is, is a, a, um, a thing that people really want to avoid because they don't want to feel the tremendous sadness that acknowledging the violence of this culture in particularly entails. Yeah, and it's a, I mean, a hyper-individualist culture, so there's a lot of alienation. Um, and in order to like curtail a, a personal sense of alienation, a lot of people turn to social media. Um, and I feel like, you know, social media is a hyper-curated 
um, place. So you see like the best side of people and what they're uh, posting. Um, and you often see like uh, influencers more than you see like people who are more like you. Um, so, you know, like in my case, you know, I, I, I'm a comedian um, and I use social media as a tool a lot. Um, and I've had, maybe I'm keeping poor company, but I've had, you know, <laughs> friends be like, you're not as funny as you are online or you're not as funny as you are on stage. But I mean, that's kind of a, um, it's a bizarre expectation to have because, you know, I might spend 30 minutes finding the right wording or the right angle on a joke. And we're having a conversation in real time. So that's a bizarre expectation. I'm like, I'm sorry to disappoint you. But I, I think that's true of um, a lot of, uh, you know, like a lot of comedians who are playing prominent venues have told those jokes uh, hundreds, sometimes thousands of times. And you don't see any of the work that goes into it. You don't see any of their failures or the times that they bomb. Um, so like w with comedy and with a lot of other art, performance art, um, and a lot of other work, academic work, you, um, you don't get to see, you see the final product, but you don't get to see all of the struggle and all of the times that someone almost gave up or all of the failure involved in that. And I think, uh, I think this promotes a lot of disappointment in the self because when you have those experiences, like you didn't see that when other people had them because they're uh, cutting it out of their social media and they're not telling you that <laughs> they had a really hard time. And this happens a lot with mothers. Um, you know, postpartum depression. Like, if you seem really sad after you have a kid, then maybe you're a failure as a mother. Um, and a lot of women don't share those experiences. Um, and so I think like that, this kind of thing where there's like a hyper curation and there's alienation from other people where it's like not okay to share um, failures or it's not okay to be like less than perfect. <laughs> it's causing people to feel like immense self-loathing. Yeah, and I, yeah, I, I don't know if you've seen like this, the shadow CV conversation that happened about a year and a half ago, and some white dudes were like, look at all this stuff that didn't get published, and I've had a big career, and here's my shadow CV. Okay, so like on the one hand, yeah, rejection and failure is a part of any writer's life or any creator, right? That's like a permanent feature of the thing. Stephen King writes about it eloquently and on writing. He's like, yo, I wrote it. It got rejected like 6,000 times. I have all the rejection letters. I hated myself, became an alcoholic. Like, that's real. On the other hand, for scholars who are in non-normative bodies, I feel like a shadow CV would have to be like, okay, well, so here are all my teachers who tried to corner me and grab my ass at conferences. Here are all the dudes who wouldn't publish my shit because I'm a girl. Here are all the people who wrote racist rejections of my articles and sent them back to me anonymously. You know what I'm saying? Like, I think a real conversation about what, you know, what failure in the academy looks like would have to really expose the way in which whiteness and masculinity structure every single part of professional matriculation. From who gets accepted into graduate programs based on the ethnicity soundingness of their name, and who gets the fellowships, and who gets the one-on-one -on -one mentorships, and who gets invited to the conferences, and who, right, who matriculates all the way up, and who gets the in-person interview, and who Skypes in, and how the publication process goes, and how white people control the gatekeeping of the journals. I mean, all of those levels are places to think about disappointment as something that is structuring 
public feelings as part of power and not, as the mental health professionals might want us to believe, as some sort of individual failure of the self to recognize the self's limitations. I mean, it's not that both and can't be true, but for me, when I think about frustrations and the people who are freaking out on me all over the place all the time about their feelings, I'm like, yo, that's a structure. That is capitalism. Your wages aren't keeping up with inflation. You're getting hosed. Can we talk about unions? Right? What I, you know, it's not that I don't want to talk about their individual mental health or their, their personal trauma or their childhood. I don't want to talk about that. But it's not, that's not, the, that stuff is not really the problem so much for me is in thinking about the way in which we don't create spaces for creative failure. It's not supported. And it's not supported because whiteness is the thing and masculinity are the things that prop up especially lean-in culture, whether that's lean-in culture in the workplace or it's lean-in culture in the family or it's lean-in culture as American exceptionalism is part of what the national ideal is. And so I think for me, thinking through disappointment is also is thinking about the relationship between sadness and violence and what is and the wide range of forms that social violence takes as a way of undermining the efficacy, especially of non-normative selves, to perform well in a hyper-individualist, white supremacist, capitalist kind of culture. Yeah, and I, I, one thing that frustrates me is that I don't think there are a lot of strategies for coping with that kind of totally. disappointment. I mean, like, there are strategies that, I mean, can help you deal with um, disappointment that you have like directed outwardly. So like Buddhism offers a solution of non-attachment. And there are a lot of like modern iterations of that idea, like um, Marie Kondo's um, practice of minimalism, like the art of tidying up, which is extremely popular. Um, but there's nothing really that addresses the disappointment about the self and then how that plays out um, as a structure of power. Yeah, I think that that's fundamentally true. And I think that the lean-in culture, the overwork, overperformance culture, basically coupled with hypercriticism makes it very hard to slow down and name the sources of disappointment, right? It's very hard to pick apart the structures that are operating in this ubiquitous way around us, that they're everywhere and nowhere simultaneously. It's very hard to say, okay, well, that's a microaggression. That passive aggressiveness is designed to fundamentally undermine my ability to participate at my, my work. Right? And, and to understand that it happens, happens at all levels of interaction, whether, the, whether it's your students who presumably have less social power in the institution than you do, although not, we know that that's not really the case, right? or if it's somebody you know, organizationally that has more power over you. I mean, it's very hard, I think, to name what is causing the disappointment. And so instead, you get people who are reporting just this pervasive heaviness, right? like it's an embodied feeling on their skin and not so much an articulation of an array of tactics that are designed strategically to undermine you know, people's sense of a full sort of self. I mean, you could name some things, like Lean In is a direct source of disappointment for a lot of women. Oh, like, yeah. If you're uh, given the advice that you just need, like, there isn't a structure word that, that favors men, and white men in particular, um, and that's part of why you're unable to achieve um, like corporate success at the same level. And that's important to a lot of women um, for whatever reason. Uh, I feel like if you're asking women to work harder, you're, you're saying that it's their fault that they haven't been able to get ahead. And so then you're asking them to work harder and make uh, appear a certain way 
in addition to um, managing the, their life outside of work. And you're, I mean, that's not fair. <laughs> because all, not all of the women who read lean in are like, okay, I'm gonna like stay at work an extra 10 hours a week. Um, and I'm gonna buy a nice pair of heels and nicer clothes so that I seem more professional. Um, not all of those women, it's not gonna work for, for all of them. And so, <laughs> like imagine how they feel, you know, after they made all of those <laughs> choices and then. Oh yeah. I mean, but it's not just work. I'm also thinking about compulsory heterosexuality and monogamy. So I'm, I, I'm a director of a gender studies program and so I tell my students like, so you're gonna get married, presumably. A bunch of you have expressed interest in that. What happens when you fall in love with a coworker at 35? What's your move there? And they're just like, that can't possibly happen. I would never do that. Like they have control over their situation. They can predict their emotional field as they age and grow and change and their needs change. It doesn't even occur to them that their desires change over time, which seems like a problem for me. Like, you are not the same person you were when you were 10. Why on earth would you think that you were gonna be the same as 60? That is absurd, that's absurd. There's so many variables you might wanna think about. So what happens then? They're like, no, 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 I'm gonna commit for life. Okay, well, the data is against you. That is not, so for women who are like leaning in, they're leaning into marriage, which is, which is disappointing, right? Because then all the men are at work swiping, right? Swiping right. And so they are then, so people are arrayed, they have this array of choices, consumer choice, that they don't ever have to commit to, but that is constantly at their fingertips, that there's always somebody better around the corner, somebody more interesting, somebody sexier, and they, they have a wildly inflated sense of their own personal value because internet. And so, uh, so what happens when you lean in to compulsory heterosexuality and monogamy in a culture that's entire, I don't, repression of desire is situated against that? I mean, that's just a recipe for disaster. You're setting up all these folks for failure, then they don't know how to manage a divorce or their babies or their sexual life afterwards. They have no sense of what their self could possibly be because the only thing that they knew was that being married and stay married was the most important thing to their family. So then their parents get involved. I mean, it's, it's just a disaster on a thousand levels because they have had no sense about how the structures are actually giving them the language of desire that they don't necessarily have it. They're just giving, they're just articulating commodity fetish mm -hmm. as actual intrinsic desire, sexual desire, professional desire, whatever success looks like is just a re-articulation of market value, really. Yeah, and it's even worse for queer folks. I mean, imagine, <laughs> I mean, in addition to like, I mean, there are no narratives that really support um, queer relationships, especially at a young age, and even like uh, um, experimenting with different kinds of queerness as an adult. I mean, there are so, there are so many feelings of sh personal shame that are completely inappropriate, mm -hmm. um, and none of that is necessary. Yeah, well, we, we talk about shame a lot. We've recorded a lot on shame and on guilt, and about how shame is sort of like the driving emotional facet of Puritan culture, of sort of Protestantism in America, and about why shame is such like a damaging emotional orientation. And I feel like, you know, that Protestantism and the drive for success and the fear of failure and the fear of disappointment, they are intrinsically connected with shame. 
Because the only way we know how to experience failure is through a language of abjection that in some ways can't ever be rectified, and that's sin, really, I mean, for a lot of America. So if that's the only language that you have to deal with failure, what does it mean to, how can you recover from it? Because everybody's gonna do, everybody's gonna fail, we all have it in common, everybody. But we don't talk about it, we don't share about it, we don't know how to coach each other through it. What does it mean to support people through that, whether you're a platonic friend or a sexual partner or a work human or a casual human, right, who just is encountering regular people on trains and planes or at the coffee shop? Like, what does it mean to create a different kind of intimate public sphere where we're doing that work of navigating failure together? There is not a language in the culture for that. It's all this hyper, like uh, the problem is you, if you just read the right book, and if you learn the secret, and if you just atone personally in your own private head, then suddenly all the problems will be ameliorated. And so there's no sense that there's a collective struggle that could change the structures of feelings that are part of you know, the economy or the political realm at all. I mean, there's just no language for it. I mean, I do, I actually think queer folks do, it, do that better though. Like, I agree. Um, handling failure and um, almost like embracing it, you know, like um, in being different and finding ways to express that difference. Um, so I think that's a good way, like um, in finding a way to play and express yourself even though um, you're at odds with a lot of um, popular culture. I mean, yeah, I guess I'm thinking about Edelman's no future and thinking about non-reproductive futurity and about how um, gay men in particular who are not going to have children have the possibility to reimagine their intimate lives very differently because children are no longer part of the, the, the reproductive horizon of politics. Well, if you think about Trump, when was the last time you heard him talking about children? Crickets. Right? He's not talking about children. They have been completely erased from the political landscape as a marker of what the future of America could be. That could be a really radical space to think about what uh, an American impulse looks like outside of you know, monogamy, outside of compulsory heterosexuality, outside of uh, reproductive futurity, especially given climate change. Like, I feel bad for some of these kids because they're like, no, 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 climate change is not real. I'm like, okay, well, I, you can move to the coast if you want to, but I, I don't know about that. The data looks pretty good. It's going to be underwater. What's going to happen when there's going to be mass migration in our lifetimes to the middle of America where your universities are? What's going to happen there? What's going to happen when there's a fuel crisis? What's going to happen, right? What's, what's going to happen? They can't even think about the future that way because the expectations and the refusal to feel disappointment is so hyper-present and it is so um, immediate, immediate responses to the right encounters of their everyday that we have, I think, as a culture, lost the ability to think about futures at all. Like, we are not. And uh, one example of this is the very first executive order that George W. Bush signed when he came into office was one that stopped the General Accounting Office from doing five-year economic projections and, it's, and, and it made them do two years. Well, that's important because you can hide a lot of shit if you're not predicting five years of economic consequences out of an economic policy, right? And that's the way that things are going. The, the rapidity of the internet, right, and the rapidity and um, intensity of the overstimulation of, you know, of public culture right now 
is also helping, I think, to feed our inability to see the future and our, and our hyper-awareness of the present and failures in the present that cannot be ameliorated through growth or through collective action. And that seems to me to be a, a, both an opportunity and a severe problem that's just like coming at us, you know, full force. Yeah, I think Donald Trump's entire orientation is towards the past, obviously. I mean, the reason it's a successful uh, rhetorical strategy is because it plays on um, the disappointment of white men, because for, for them, um, as historically the class uh, with the greatest power, um, progress seems like loss to them. <laughs> and so, I mean, they have no desire to look towards the future or think about progress. And it's weird that that's become a big um, talking point. Yeah, but that's smart. That's smart because nostalgia is the, the relationship between memory and feeling that propels really regressive social policy. And in America, nostalgia is really white and it's really masculine. And at a time where America is browning, right, where the majority of Americans will be browned by 2050, nostalgia becomes a tool of harnessing white anxiety, male anxiety, but also there's a bunch of white women raising those tiki torch guys. Right, white women too, who wanna wanna think about the past in a way that glorifies their own violence as a way of perpetuating it in the future. So I think that that's right. That there is this this the way in which nostalgia is this weird handmaiden to this hyper accelerationist perspective on presentism on you know just the barrage of in your in many of the cases of the presentations today sound right how sound is barraging us how images are barraging us but also how expectations of success. So when I think about Make America Great Again as a slogan, obviously it was Reagan's campaign slogan. He rolled it out in Neshoba County, Mississippi, which is where the three civil rights workers were, uh, the civil rights work, work, workers were lynched in uh, Mississippi Freedom Summer. And so Make America Great Again is a, is a nostalgia for Reagan, but it's also a racist dog whistle that is, that is um, a, a wink and nod to law and order culture that is just extrajudicial murder of people of color. So there is a way in which that harnessing of nostalgia is mobilizing state violence in a way that is extremely concerted. It is a concerted effort of anti-black and brown um, violence. And you, that's a part of what, what the culture is trying to make itself into now. And so I talk about it a lot in my race classes. If we don't step in and create some collective solutions to this understanding of success and failure as a marker of whiteness or bourgeois individualism, um, in the next 20 years, the U.S. is going to look like apartheid South Africa. And all of the money is going to be aggregated at the top with the whites. And they're going to cut all black and brown people um, out of power. And that's what, that's what this process looks like if it's fully completed. Right? The nostalgia is harnessed as a way of aggregating power in a way that there is no inclusion at all. You know? And so it's like if you don't deal with the failure of white masculinity now, <laughs> if we kick that can, all they're going to do is hyper-segregate every avenue of power. And you're seeing that happen. You're seeing that happen in all three branches of government. All of the leaks in the Trump administration are evidence of the way that that is going. I mean, this is not like, this is like what's happening. I I'm, I'm feel like I'm just being descriptive of the status quo. And so, how to, so in some ways, this moment, sadly, is about like how to manage the fragility of white people so that the, everybody else cannot get shot in the streets and can live marginally productive and air quotes lives, right? It's like you're so fragile, you've got to be killing black kids in the street. 
Like, that's so weak. It's so fundamentally weak, right? That you can't handle your shit and your personal failure as like a group of humans and that you're gonna use state violence to consolidate some like fantasy, you know, collective self of whiteness. And rant. Yeah, I mean, it would certainly be a great project to, to um, be able to parse like what the actual emotion in a, in a post is and be a little more <laughs> um, equitable about how those uh, posts are uh, populated on your newsfeed. Um, but yeah, yeah, it's a weird algorithm where I, the posts that more people like are the ones that move to the top. Just like I'm, it's also you know, popularity breeds popularity, and uh, positive. Um, I feel like positive posts are actually the majority of posts too. So, yeah, I mean they're just collecting market research on you to sell you stuff. So I mean. You can, you can pretend that other things are happening well there, they're mostly not happening, but I think that almost all of the posts on Facebook that have dense emotional content are cries for help or meaning in a culture that has devalued emotional meaning so much, and then the response to that is either silence or shame, which mirrors the larger culture outside of the internet. Thanks for listening. These materials are not endorsed, approved, sponsored, or provided by or on behalf of the University of Arkansas Fayetteville.